and welcome to the Here and Now podcast from Federated Hermes. I'm Linda Dissel, Senior Equity Strategist. Today's episode is a special recording of a roundtable discussion I led with Susan Hill, Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of the Government Liquidity Group, RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager, Head of the Municipal Bond Group and the Duration Committee, and Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management. For those of you who are not as familiar with Federated Hermes, I'll give you a brief introduction to our company. Federated Hermes is a global leader in active, responsible investing with $668.9 billion in assets under management as of the end of 2021. At Federated Hermes, responsibility is central to our client relationships, our long-term perspective, and our fiduciary mindset. It's part of our heritage and the foundation of our future. Our investment solutions span equity, fixed income, alternative slash private markets, multi-asset and liquidity management strategies. Now let's jump into our discussion. Sue, in light of the March FOMC meeting and Chair Powell's subsequent remarks, can you please set the table and frame where Federated Hermes thinks things are with regard to monetary policy at present? Thank you, Linda, I would be happy to. So I've been around the block a couple of times um, in my money market career, but really have never experienced something like the shifting sentiment that we've seen over the past few weeks and months at the front end. I thought last week's FOMC meeting was really going to be the story that after so much uncertainty and long lead up, uh, the thing, it'll be the thing that would really set the stage for how the Fed would be responding. It was, I think, undeniably hawkish. Um, it's no secret that the uh, increase in the Fed Fund's target rate was obviously welcomed by money market fund managers who have been struggling with fee waivers for quite some time. But the rest of the meeting, the rest of the news was really attention grabbing for sure. There were upward revisions to inflation. There were downward revisions to GDP. And then the dot plot revealed projections for future hikes um, that really exceeded even the market's expectations at, at that time. So we came away knowing that the Fed was serious about inflation, strongly focused on the price stability aspect of its dual mandate. Again, I, I thought that was the story until yesterday. Yesterday, in his speech in front of the National Association of Business Economists, Jay Powell doubled down on his inflation messaging, said the Fed will do whatever it needs to do to get inflation under control, up to and including 50 basis point rate hikes as soon as the March 4th FOMC meeting. I think we got Powell's view yesterday rather than the collective views of the FOMC. And I think that was noteworthy from my perspective. So expectations in the market as reflected in the Fed Fund's futures contracts, they've shifted yet again. Um, words that I think I've said almost every week since the fourth quarter of last year. And they now reflect well over seven hikes, almost eight hikes uh, remaining over the course of this year, inclusive of the one just taken, or in addition to the one just taken. That implies a Fed Fund's target rate over, of over 2% at the end of the year um, and a greater than 50% chance of a 50 basis point move is priced to those contracts for both the May and June FOMC meetings. Do, does our Fed now sound more hawkish than any other central bank? Um, I believe that, that they do, right? We, you know, we, we uh, watch closely uh, what other countries are doing. I do believe that the Fed is is leading the way in the inflation uh, you know, fight. Um, we, though, in the U.S., I believe, are in a better economic position, which, which may allow the Fed a little more flexibility to embark upon this path. But there are other central banks moving 
in the same direction uh, that the Fed, I believe, has perhaps the most hawkish tone from my perspective. So as money market managers, we, you know, we, we try and go back in history to see, uh, you know, to find clues that might be helpful as to what might happen going forward. And I think the Fed, though, has this unprecedented set of stuff um, in front of them uh, in difficult waters to navigate. Uh, and, and I think is in an unenviable position. Um, from our perspective, um, we uh, believe that the futures market is maybe pricing a little bit too aggressively, uh, but that the base case for a 50 basis point move at either, either the May or June FOMC meeting, I, I, I think, is sound. Uh, we also expect several additional hikes throughout the course of the year, uh, you know, over, uh, over the months ahead. Um, I do think this aggressive action is almost destined or maybe even designed uh, to result in the Fed overshooting its goal a little bit um, as monetary policy works with long and variable lags. It's something that you hear very often. Um, and I think the Fed will want to actually see the progress being made rather than just assume that, uh, that their moves will take effect. Uh, so I'm a little bit uncertain about the rapid pace of rate hikes that we expect to see today really spilling over into uh, next year unabated. With respect to the balance sheet, we think the Fed will spell out its plan um, at, the, at the May, or actually in the minutes to the March FOMC meeting. Um, we'll see those minutes in a couple of weeks, um, and we'll get a pretty good idea as to what to expect. We have that already. We think it'll look a lot like, uh, like what happened the last time around, although the numbers will be bigger and the pace will be, um, will be faster. But we are in you know, uncharted waters, um, and it does raise a lot of questions uh, about you know, things that could happen and where things could go wrong. And what a sober start to our discussion today. Uncharted waters. And I understand that Sue says the futures market is fairly aggressive in what they're expecting. Are we un are we undergoing a hike tantrum at the moment as we speak? Uh, I, th I think we are. Um, looking looking over the last five days, uh, you know, which, which hardly makes a long period of time, the two-year treasury has risen 31 basis points in five days. Uh, the 10-year, people like to watch that more closely. It's up 23 basis points. The 30-year is only up 11. And you know, by any stretch of the imagination, these types of moves are, are pretty comparable to the taper tantrum of 2013 with, with a couple of important differences. Back then, the Fed wasn't signaling they were going to hike. They were signaling that they were going to slow down their bond purchases. That's already happened. Now, this isn't a taper tantrum. It's a tightening tantrum. Back then, the yield curve bear steepened. All yields up steeper yield curve. So 30-year yields went up more than two-year yields. This time, it's the other way around. So on a year-to-date basis, just as a measure of how this tantrum is unfolding, the two-year treasury yields up 143 basis points. The 10-year is up 86. We have a bear flattener because the market is incorporating the Fed's very public uh, projections, the dot plot, for significant tightening and flattening the curve as a result, even introducing in the minds of some this very flat or potential inverted curve, which starts to bring forward the prospect of, are they overdoing it? Are we, end up gonna, are we gonna end up tipping over into a recession outcome as they fight the highest inflation in 40 years? So yeah, we're, we're going through a tantrum. The bond market, the aggregate index, the Bloomberg aggregate index is down over 6% and it's not even March 31st. So tantrum for sure. Yes, the bond market was supposed to be boring. That's what I understood all those years growing up in the equity side. And Sue, you spoke a bit about the balance sheet and what you thought might happen in terms of a 
of a runoff, but uh, but it is is the market prepared or or can can it be prepared for uh, maybe something that's more destabilizing in terms of balance sheet behavior and selling bonds? And if they did sell bonds, what bonds might they sell first? We 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 do expect to get details about the balance sheet runoff or balance sheet management um, plan. Uh, by the Fed to, you know, hinted at in the minutes to the most recent FOMC meeting. I think they will discuss it outright in um, in May. I think their approach will be very passive uh, initially, very similar to how they started things off the last time around. I think because the history is there and the market understands how it works, that passive approach should be something that the market should be able to handle. The Fed will be very clear in terms of its cap process. Um, how that runoff will occur. And over the first 12 months um, of, of uh, balance sheet reduction in that passive mode, that should still account for, for a trillion dollars in terms of, of uh, uh, you know, runoff of security. So, so I think the pa- passive versus active approach is the critical uh, component. They'll start from passive. If they need more uh, or faster policy accommodation removal, um, then they can move towards selling securities outright. I think that could be more of a problem for the curve to digest. Um, and I don't expect that for some time. Well, uh, RJ or Sue, if you could chime in on this one, and you said something I thought was kind of powerful, just the runoff will be $1 trillion. And I mean, that's a significant amount of the size of their balance sheet. Should we fear some sort of economic reverberations at all? Um, from my perspective, I'm, uh, again, I'm, I, I'm not concerned. I think, I think, um, Powell even alluded or stated during the course of uh, the press conference to the FOMC meeting that took place last week that the concept of portfolio runoff, at least in the early stages, is maybe akin to an additional tightening step from the Fed. You know, I don't think that's why the Fed has been buying securities, nor do I think it's why they're, you know, running off securities to, to mimic the tightening process. I think they need to reduce their presence in the marketplace. It's substantial. And they need to do so in a in a uh, uh, you know responsible manner. Okay, great. Now I'd like to move over to you, Phil, and uh, still with inflation, unfortunately, but changing the subject a bit here to uh, what is at the what is at the top and uh, you know the top of all all the discussions these days is the Russia Ukraine conflict. And what is your expectations as to how that particular conflict will inf- impact inflation? as we suffer it around the globe. In a word, uh, we think it's going to make it worse. You know, Sue, I think, did a beautiful job of setting the table for us. You've got nominal uh, CPI inflation right now sitting at 7.9% in February, essentially before uh, any of the impact of Russia's unprovoked and unjustified invasion into Ukraine uh, began to destabilize the energy market. So crude oil, you know, WTI was sitting at about $90 a barrel on its own merits uh, before the invasion, spiked up to $130 a barrel uh, in short order and has come off and stabilized a little bit. You know, but as we look at, you know, the impact of Russia, Ukraine, the, their situation, Russian aggression here has made them uh, international pariahs. They're being sanctioned all over the world in terms of their energy output. Now, they're 
you know, one of the three largest energy producers in the world, right? Saudi Arabia, Russia, the United States. And uh, they account for about 10 million barrels a, a day in production. They export about half of it. So if, if they've created a situation which no one in the Western world will buy their oil, that means that, that the rest of us uh, have to replace that uh, 5 million barrels a day. And, and that, you know, supply-demand balance uh, is suggesting that the, the, uh, the cost of oil is going to remain high, uh, and that's going to have an incrementally deleterious impact on inflation. So th this is not just, uh, you know, an eye blink. This, this creates a higher, more sustainable level of inflation, you know, at least for the next several months. And doesn't this play right into the hands of Russia, who, I mean, isn't that their business to sell oil? Well, you know, I, I would argue that that Russia is basically a giant gas station with an army. So this is right their stock and trade. And to some degree, I think they anticipated what was going on here. But it's great for them because they're, you know, producing 10 million barrels a day. And the price has just gone up from $30 a barrel, you know, 15 months ago. And we're now sitting here at about $110 a barrel. But even though the prices are up, do they have the ability to sell that oil to someone else? And what we're hearing, you know, what I think we've all seen in the papers and whatever, is that there are countries, normal customers, that are reluctant to buy that crude uh, from Russia because of the global sanctions. That even though Russia may be discounting that crude by 20 or $30 a barrel, uh, they're having trouble moving it. So does that sort of gum up the works as it relates to Russia's economy? Answer, yes. It also gums up the works in terms of the global economy because, again, you're taking 5 million barrels a day out of a relatively tight market in an economy that's still, you know, still performing pretty well. Yeah, and of course, I think that we at Federated Hermes have suggested, even though no one could really read the future on a geopolitical event like this, that it might be a long slog. And if that's the case... And with what we know now, can we call this kind of an uptick in inflation as related to the price of oil and the conflict transitory? Can it be transitory, Phil? So from our perspective, no. I mean, this has been, you know, the tug of war at the Federal Reserve was undergoing, I guess, at about this time last year. You know, they were assuring us that, you know, the inflation trends were temporary, they were transitory. As soon as the procedural base effects rolled off in the middle of last year, inflation would roll off. And, and we, didn't, we didn't see that, in part because of energy pricing, food pricing, housing prices, yeah. supply and demand in the labor market. And so we don't think that what's going on with Russia and energy is pointing to a transitory inflation picture. We think it's, it's higher for longer here based upon what we think we know. And what do we have as our uh, as our price outlook for the for a barrel of oil? What's our well, uh, you know, 15 months ago we thought we could get to ninety dollars a barrel by the end of last year, uh, and we think we can get to about hundred and twenty dollars a barrel by the end of this year. And directionally, uh, those were decent calls. So I think we're we're sticking to our guns at this point. Yeah. Well, that it's a uh, yeah it's it's a tough it's a tough thing to hear when you when we know is as uh, Sue and RJ have been speaking about the fact that the Fed is walking a tightrope here. Uh, we're all hoping, fingers crossed, to see inflation come off the boil. And this has not helped 
one little bit, I guess, I guess something that I've read that I, that I think is kind of uh, perhaps a bit uh, comforting here in the United States is that, you know, we used to use a lot more energy in the United States to create a, a dollar of GDP. The 50s are crazy much more, the 70s, even the 90s much more. So that's, that's one good thing. And I guess we're now starting to see as we, we don't have time to talk today about the midterm election year that we're in, that in this midterm election year, I think the those that are up for re-election are trying to figure out some ways of helping the lower income cohort here in the United States deal with this uh, uh, right to your pocketbook problem. But, but now I'd like to move over to RJ again, if I may. RJ, and talk about that yield curve again. Um, I've always thought that that the, you know, the bond market was a very good forecaster of economic cycles. And you really don't want to be, you don't want to be seeing an inverted yield curve. And we keep seeing on the, you know, in the media, you know, every day about parts of the yield curve are inverting and what that might be telling us. Uh, do you see that, do you see some trouble here as goes the yield curve and evidencing a recession on the horizon, RJ? Sure. Uh, historically, the yield curve is a, is a powerful predictor of recessions. Um, some even think that a flattening or inverted yield curve actually causes a recession. I'm not a big fan of that theory, but that's a discussion for another day. Uh, and the yield curve uh, that gets most attention in the marketplace is the slope uh, in basis points between the two-year yield and the 10-year Treasury yield. That is just 21 basis points right now. Still upward sloping, but uh, closing in on zero. It's yeah. flattened by 57 basis points on a year-to-date basis, and just this month it's flattened almost 19. Um, Worrisome, yes, but I, I would suggest that the, the reason the curve flattens as you head into recessions is because the Fed is hiking short rates, causing short-term yields to rise, and longer yields, which uh, have clearly a longer horizon, say 10 years at the 10-year part of the curve, are incorporating expectations for the economic performance and the rate environment over the entire 10-year period. So oftentimes when the Fed has imparted so much restraint by tightening, short rates will go higher than long rates. You have an inverted curve. The market's signaling a recession is coming. They think ultimately the Fed will be forced to ease in years to come. Right now, we don't have that inversion. I also think it's important to note that the most compelling yield curve for signaling the probability of recession is really the three-month to 10-year yield curve, the three-month bill to the 10-year yield curve. That slope is 184 basis points, and it's gone up 39 basis points year to date. Why the disconnect? That's powerful. That is powerful what you just said. We don't appreciate that enough out there. That's what we should be focusing on. What's that telling us? Well, the disconnect here is I think that the two-year yield, the 10-year yield are reacting to the dots. They're reacting to the fact that the highest inflation since Paul Volcker was the Fed chairman you know, back in the early 80s uh, demands policymakers' attention and the Fed is paying you know, hawkish attention to it. They're telling us they're going to tighten. They're going to tighten a lot. So the two-year yield incorporates expectations of the Fed funds rate over the next two years, but they've only hiked once. <laughs> There's more coming, as we said, probably 50 basis points sometime soon. But short rates at the three-month part of the curve are going to react to what the Fed actually does. So the market, the bond market likes to focus on twos, tens, because it incorporates expectations at the two-year and the 10-year part of the curve. But the most predictive curve for recessions is the three months to 10 years. It's what the Fed watches very closely. The Fed also watches slopes of curves even within a year when they get to the point where they're thinking about ending their hiking process. They're nowhere near that just yet. So I think right now it's reasonable to worry about the recession risk. Let's face it. 
We've had a massive aggregate supply shock in the form of the highest inflation in, in 40 years, aggravated by the Ukraine-Russia situation, yeah. and the Fed's tightening. Other times in, in U.S. history, when a, the Fed is tightening and inflation's on the rise, a recession eventually follows. So the curves flattening makes sense, but they're not yet flashing yellow and red. Uh, and I think we should maybe calm down a little bit because we don't have that inversion at this point in time. And RJ, before I, before I leave you here, is there a Fed put on the horizon? Um, I think the Fed put is way out of the money. Um, you know, I've been in the markets in one form or another uh, since 1991. I used to work for the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. The Fed put used to be a sort of a pejorative term, uh, implying that the, the Fed had become slave to the marketplace. But what, what was interesting over most of my career is that inflation was, was relatively benign and, and actually going down for much of my career. So the Fed could afford to have a put. Why not work with the market so that financial conditions support economic growth when inflation is so low? That's not the situation today. Inflation is so high. So the Fed put is much further out of the money. The Fed is not apt to sort of completely do a 180 like Powell did in 2018 when the market protested. I think he's not apt to do that this time. The inflation situation is much different than the last 30, 40 years. The Fed put is much further out of the money. They need to focus on inflation, not just the markets. All right, Phil. <clears throat> the Fed put is out of the money. Inflation is just too high. And we have this, uh, we have this conflict that only makes things worse. And what my understanding is that the Fed, in their attempt to get things under control, they always go too far. They th they're the ones that throw us into recession. Do we see a recession on the horizon this year or next, Phil? Uh, in a word, the answer is no. And, and the reason for that is this, there's just so much stimulus in the pipeline, both fiscal and monetary, that, that you know, to take a step back from, from all of this near-term recession discussion and really take a deep breath, remember the Fed cut interest rates down to zero and left them there for a couple of years and, and ramped up its balance sheet to $9 trillion. Then between the CARES Act in 2020 and the ARP program in 2021, we added another $5 trillion from fiscal policy stimulus into the pipeline. It, it, it's going to take a tremendous amount of time to wring all of that stimulus out. E even though savings rate, for example, are back to normal at about 6.5%, that we still have excess savings in people's and businesses' bank accounts of about $2 trillion. So the reality is that it's probably not going to result in recession in 22 or in 23. But again, to sort of bring this back to the Federal Reserve, it, it, it takes about you know six to nine months for one half of the effect of a rate change to start to filter through the economy. It takes about 12 to 18 months for the full effect to be felt. So listen to what Sue and RJ have been talking about. If the Fed follows the path that that you know we've laid out here, we've already seen a quarter point last week. Maybe we've got a couple of 50s coming up after that, then a couple more quarters after that. That suggests that as we get into that, you know, 24, 25 time frame, that that's the period of time, given the risk of the Fed overshooting, that legitimately we should be concerned about recession. And maybe the Fed goes a little faster and maybe that gets pulled forward a little bit, maybe into the end of calendar 23. But to suggest that we're looking at recession tomorrow or next month, next quarter, it's probably not in the cards, at least, you know, based upon what we think we know now. 
Oh yeah, a 24-25, gosh, I could sleep very well at night if I, if I felt that way. A lot of water could pass under the bridge between now and then. And of course, uh, we don't have to have a recession to have a, a weak market. What do we know about, Phil, what do we know about the ability of companies to push through the hikes, the inflation that they are suffering in the name of their profits and the stock market? Well, what we've got is data on the fourth quarter of last year. And we know that um, wages are up substantially. We know that commodity costs are up substantially. We know that transportation costs are up substantially. Yet, corporate earnings in the fourth quarter were expected to be up about 20% year on year. I think we were looking for like 25%. They actually came in closer to 30%. Wow. And the margins were very strong. So I think what that's suggesting is that companies have had plenty of pricing power, and maybe that was a function of the fact that we've all got so much savings, and we've so been so deprived based upon uh, the uh, the coronavirus situation over the last two years. We were willing to pay anything to, to get that good, to get that service. Now, as prices continue to go up and, and as savings contract, uh, maybe that situation gets dicier throughout the balance of 22 and into calendar 23. But at least through the end of last year, companies were able to pass those price increases along and didn't have a lot of resistance from, from end clients. Okay, well, so far so good. It's, it, 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 is, it is true, we rocked the boat in a lot of ways and some of the ways ended up quite positive. We still have a lot of money and we're pent up demand and we're ready to go out there and savings are still uh, abundant. So I guess that's, that's good news for this year and next anyway, and no recession on the horizon. Uh, but Sue, coming back to you, if you would. Now, RJ reminds us that the yield curve is misbehaving, even though the Fed has only raised once. What, what sort of indicators are already reflecting the tightening and, and kind of doing the Fed's work for them in a manner? Sure. So, so actually, I, I will add on to RJ that I have full respect for yield curve signaling, um, but I agree wholeheartedly with him that the front end of the curve or the measures that include the front end of the curve are, are really the ones that matter. And I think we heard that from, uh, from Powell yesterday as, as well. So we're, we're far from, from signaling at this point. You know, when we start to see how the Fed is going to or determine you know, how the Fed judges success um, and, and you know, whether financial market conditions are tightening or not, you can you know, flat out look at, at the increase in yield out the yield curve, which have been substantial, uh, to know that there is, is certainly financial uh, conditions that are tightening and that's been taking place since the fourth quarter of last year. Um, we look at um, you know the five-year, five-year forward um, inflationary ex you know, inflationary expectations built into the marketplace to see how that may may be shifting. In fact, is shifting uh, with with respect to um, you know expected Fed action and, and the success of that action. And you know, ever since the the pandemic and the the, the huge dislocations that we've seen um, in the marketplace, the traditional inflation measures, right? The the CPI, PPI, PCE, for PCE, the Fed's preferred measures, um, are, are really uh, it, it just the same as, as most economic um, indicators, traditional economic indicators, you know, aren't really necessarily up to the task to judge at any given moment, you know, what, mm -hmm. what's being successful or not. So you look for market-based indicators, you look for um, financial conditions indices to see how they may be shifting and, re and reflecting what at this point has just been 
for the most part, a lot of talk from the Fed and once it gets implemented, how this will over. Okay, well, excellent. Um, so RJ, inflation is not transitory and I guess we all have to agree to that now. And I have asked you many times in this last year or two, how do we have in and around a 2% 10-year bond yield when inflation is at 8%? How does that happen? And you explained the importance of inflation expectations. Is that the most important thing here and for this tightrope the Fed's walking on? Uh, I, th I think right now it, it probably is the most important thing. I, I think that the Inflation expectations are important in a variety of ways. Number one, in, in the market's pricing. If the market anticipates that inflation is going to follow a trajectory uh, up or down, it's going to affect the relationship between long-term yields relative to short-term yields. Uh, currently, it's, it, it, the expectation is very different. Inflation is now viewed likely to be peaking in the next you know, three to six months. At one point, we thought it would have peaked uh, maybe by now or by you know, April or May, but the Russia invasion of Ukraine certainly uh, doused that expectation. So if you look at inflation expectations, what are they telling us? It, right now in the TIPS market, the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities market, you can see inflation break-evens at the two-year part of the Treasury market, the yield difference between a two-year TIP and a two-year nominal Treasury is an astronomical 4.79%. So that's telling you that the market believes, you know, abstracting away from some liquidity premiums that affect how tips price, the market believes that inflation is going to average about 4.8, call it 4.9% over the next two years. You go out to five years, the inflation break even falls sharply to 365. Go out to 10, it's down below three at 295. The simple fact of the matter is that the market believes that inflation will not stay where it is. The 8% year-over-year number will, in fact, be fleeting or episodic. I don't want to use the transitory word. Um, what causes it to correct? A Fed that is tightening, that helps the market believe that the Fed is working to get that inflation down. What else helps inflation correct? Well, the economy is probably going to slow amid the aggregate supply shock. It's going to reduce aggregate demand and economic activity as much as it's going to inflame inflation. And number three, the supply chain debacle that took off in the, in the wake of the pandemic reopening will eventually work its way out. There's too much profit there to be realized to let the supply chain be as kinked as it is forever. Com uh, economies, governments, people see great profits in trying to deliver goods from point A to point Z. That will get better over time. So the market believes inflation expectations are going to come down. It's very key in keeping long-term yields from rising even further. If the market starts to believe the opposite, that inflation at 5, 6, 7, 8% is not going to come down, then watch out below because bond prices have to fall a lot more and bond nominal bond yields would have to rise a lot more to compensate bond investors for the risks they're, that they're taking. So fortunately, the Fed is helping to support the bond market, preventing an even more stark sell-off by having a very clear hawkish path that they've communicated to the market thus far. And so inflation expectations can be 4% in two years and the market is swallowing. That's okay, it's coming down, even if that's two years out. And right. so it does, does this, I, I imagine then Powell and his team are very uh, focused on these inflation expectations. Might that have something to do with his speeches? 
I, I think so. I, I think uh, one other uh, one other forum in which inflation expectations are, are fundamentally important, uh, the academic, economic, and policymaker forums. Uh, you know, the, your macroeconomics textbooks, uh, you know, many years ago focused on monetary aggregates and focused on other ways that monetary policy was transmitted to the real economy. More modern treatments of monetary policy give very high um, focus, uh, a lot of attention to the role of expectations because they realize that inflation expectations can also impact the behavior of firms in pricing their products. It can impact the behavior of households in making their purchasing decisions for goods and services. So it goes well beyond just the sort of corners of the bond market. It affects the way that households and firms behave as well. So inflation expectations becoming unhinged, uh, th that outcome would be very dangerous for the Fed. It would end up resulting in the kind of wage price inflation spiral that we saw way, way back 50 years ago that the Fed very much does not want to repeat. Their tough talk helps to keep those inflation expectations, hopefully, from becoming unhinged. The problem will be if, if, if inflation doesn't come back down. If inflation doesn't come back down, I think it's going to be a rude awakening for financial assets broadly, because the implications would be the Fed has to hike even more. So bond prices fall, yields rise. I think other financial assets might be challenged if yields rise excessively high. Now, you brought up something that I think I'd like to see if anybody else in the group would like to respond to, and that is uh, they really have to get these inflation expectations down and the wage price inflation, the wage price spiral is something that, you know, I, I remember seeing it back in the in the 70s and, uh, you know, and those who would argue, well, you know, it was the price of oil was always attached to to um, the an inflationary problem. Yes, but we're less reliant on energy than we had been historically, at least here in the United States. But wages are under control. And this and this is where uh, it's. This is where I, I think it's a worry. And I also think that there are two whole younger generations that have never seen anything but a 2% inflation. They haven't a clue on what, uh, on what might be coming ahead when, when, when we started to see people up the wage, up the skill level, um, getting really good wage hikes just from going down the street, maybe from one bank to the next, are we witnessing a wage price spiral now that is only exacerbated by the fact that there are 3 million baby boomers who retired a bit earlier than what they thought they would before COVID? Anybody want to chime in on this wage price spiral? I'll take a crack on it to start, and I'm sure Sue and RJ will have some thoughts. So just looking at the latest set of data, you know, we've talked about the fact that the uh, nominal consumer price index sitting at 7.9%, 40-year high. But wages are pretty good. You know, last uh, jobs report we saw the month of February, wages were up 5.1%. That's that's pretty good. But what, what a lot of people don't recognize or understand is that implies that there's a loss of purchasing power of 2.8%. And, and what that does is it forces employees to go to their employers and demand a raise. And they either get that raise or they, you know, leave and walk across the street and get a better job that pays more. And and you've got the JOLTS report right now, the job opening and labor turnover survey, which has in round numbers about 11 million open jobs in this country. 
And the relationship is there's something like 1.7 open jobs for every one person who's actively looking for a job. So uh, if you're a skilled worker, the, the ability to walk across the street and get a better job that pays more is, is certainly a high probability. And then we had talked about you know, the concept before, okay, if an employer is, is paying higher wages uh, in order to get their, their workers to come back into the market, to come back into the company to be able to to conduct business companies are simply passing those higher labor costs on in order to maintain their profit margins and so this is the 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 uh the virtuous cycle that we're looking at the the inflation leads to higher demand for more wages and then companies simply pass that on and and the cycle continues this is the conundrum that voker you know, needed to break 40 years ago by t- taking interest rates up high, <coughs> excuse me, intentionally invoking a recession, I guess, in order to break those expectations and, and sort of reset. I, I don't think, speaking personally, that the situation is anywhere near as draconian now and that Powell is going to need to do anything as extreme as, as Volcker did, but that's the risk, that's the concern that this wage price spiral gets out of control, uh, the power of the Fed jawbone doesn't work, and and that's going to require more uh, active policy in terms of uh, either uh, quantitative tightening or raising of interest rates above and beyond what the markets are pricing in. Okay, Phil, from your lips, all right, that this doesn't get worse, that this doesn't get much worse, and we don't have to suffer why poor Powell would want that job anyway, but uh, we wish him Godspeed. And of course, the wage hikes, just as you suggest, the wage hikes are great and consumers haven't been so miserable in quite a long time, which is so inconvenient for the midterm elections that are coming right down the pike. And even if they're, even the, uh, the average person out there doesn't see a recession on the horizon, they are, uh, they, they might want to go to the voting booth and, um, you know, and vote out the current leadership there in terms of the uh, midterm elections. So do you think, Phil, that Biden, where we know, we know that the midterm elections are a referendum on the president. Do you think that he might try to seek a fiscal stimulus and resurrect some part of that build back better as a midterm so-called Hail Mary? So there's no question that the president's poll numbers uh, have taken a hit here uh, in uh, in recent months uh, in light of the inflation spike and and the rise in energy prices, et cetera. Uh, certainly, uh, there are certain cohorts within the U.S. economy that could benefit from a uh, from lower gas prices or maybe. Uh, um, uh, a holiday, uh, state and local or federal gas taxes or things of that nature, or perhaps some other um, fiscal policy stimulus to counter that. Uh, but given the fact that we're sitting here with, you know, 7.9% inflation in February and likely going higher in coming months, uh, the appetite, I think, in Congress to pass something like this uh, that that the average voter might view as being irresponsible with regard to inflation, I think is is a problem. From a logistical standpoint, 
uh, the calendar is 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 pretty tight right now. We're now towards the end of March. Mm-hmm. Um, once you get into about the end of July, uh, the Congress goes home. They go back in district. They they begin their reelection campaigns over the course of the months of August and the first half of September. Then they come back to Washington for you know some procedural stuff. But if if you don't get a fiscal policy program passed like now in between uh here we are the end of march into the end of july you simply don't have enough time to get it done and there are two other major enchiladas that the congress has got to focus on one is getting a new supreme court justice approved and the other is uh uh, filling out uh the board of governors of the federal reserve both of those things are going to suck some of the air out of the Congress as well. So Congress has got a lot of stuff to work on right now and not a lot of time to do it. Yeah, the clock is really, really ticking. That'd be too much fun to watch the summertime pass here, won't it, guys? I think I'd like to move uh, back to you now, Sue, as I I noticed, you know, the the Google search term is kind of fun to watch what people really, really search for. And I and, and I, I started watching this more, more closely at the beginning of the pandemic when we were all looking up, what does social distancing mean? Of course, now, now it's like baked into our heads. It's, it's amazing what a couple of years will do. And then when the, I, I remember that when stimulus money started to come out and you know, lots of people were like, how do I get money showing up in my bank account? And they did a lot of research, a lot of uh, Google searches on inflation, which again had been dormant for 40 years. But now they're spiking in terms of stagflation. And of course, we suffer. I suffered, I should speak for myself, Sue. I suffered stagflation back in the 1970s. Uh, are we having a stagflation now? How do we even define that these days? And, you know, what, what do we want to tell those people that are searching? It's a great question, um, and I'm embarrassed to admit that I did my own Google searching for, you know, the, the true definition of stagflation and how um, you know, how it's being used today. And in almost all cases, you get, you know, you get the idea that, that um, you know, inflationary pressures are there, that prices are higher, um, and that growth is slower. But one component seems to be uh, a persistently high um, unemployment rate, which clearly is not the circumstance we have today. Uh, we have very tight labor market, um, you know, unprecedentedly tight, you know, tight labor market. And a lot of room to go with Federal Reserve action and policy accommodation removal, so tightening, um, before um, before that labor market is you know is hit and even begins to approach an unemployment rate that that can be you know included in the stagflation uh, definition. Um, the Fed's very clearly focused on inflation, um, and they have said many times that you know they think that the labor market is enough to withstand. Uh, the types of rate hikes that are being discussed, but it but it's not a guarantee. And 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 frankly, if inflation is not under control, I would I would not expect the Fed to to maybe go a little bit you know farther than anticipated, uh, simply to to accomplish that goal. So the labor market might take a hit, but I don't think to the extent that you have an unemployment rate uh, that meets that Google definition of stagflation in the next year or two. The next year or two, that's all we're going to ask for right now. No stagflation. You need high unemployment. We're in a booming employment situation, perhaps the best in uh, in our lifetimes. So uh, so now coming back to you, RJ, again, I, I just remind myself that interest rates have been 
have been coming down. You make money when interest rates decline. If you're in the bond market, they've been low. You have um, all oh, a ton of, uh, of, uh, of people, you know, retiring, maybe maybe retiring early, you know, that's us up over, uh, over 60 and, you know, and the likes retiring. And we think, we thought that we should invest more for income, more for safety. We always you went to the government bond for that. And today, even today, with inflation as high as what you all have been describing, the 10-year bond yield has a two-handle on it. Um, and what I found very, very interesting is that since the bubble, since the housing bubble burst of 2009, money's continued to flow into bond, mutual funds, and ETFs as it left equities. And so now with interest rates low but rising, we in the equity side of things like to speak of Tina, there is no alternative. As a good bond steward, is there no alternative to bonds? Should we even be thinking about buying bonds, even the highest quality treasury bonds of the United States? Well, I think that um, just like within the equity market, there's a variety of stocks. There's small cap, there's large cap, there's value, there's growth, there's different sectors. In the bond market, uh, oftentimes people view it unfairly in a monolithic way. Um, so right now, the Treasury index, uh, investment grade corporates, high quality bonds are producing losses of, you know, five, six, seven percent. Um, meanwhile, if you were in floating rate bank loans, you're down a little more than a percent. Uh, if you own, if you diversify into tips, you actually have a small positive return, depending upon how long the tips are that you own. And right now, there's not a lot of absolute positives in bonds. Here's why. We just came out of a 100-year pandemic, during which the Federal Reserve cut interest rates to zero and grew its balance sheet to $9-plus trillion. When they started to reverse those factors, eventually shrinking the balance sheet and telling the market they're going to raise interest rates, yields had to go from near record lows, or basically record lows, higher, causing bond prices to go down. Right now, we're in a difficult adjustment period. Uh, it's hard to argue that we should just go out and buy treasury bonds and think everything's going to be okay. Uh, yeah. Treasury bonds don't default, but they can lose four or five or 6% as yields rise. And that's the situation we currently face. Um, being overweight stocks and underweight bonds has made sense now for quite some time as we've come out of the pandemic. I still think it makes sense. There's room for caution, however, because of the array of shocks that we've discussed in this, in this conversation to the economy and the inflation situation. Right now, bonds still make some sense on, in, in an underweighted position. I wouldn't abandon all your bonds. If Putin is crazy enough, and he might be, to carry the Ukraine conflict beyond Ukraine's borders, extending the conflict to potentially NATO territory, you're going to want to own some high-quality bonds because some of the, the market's response to that kind of development will be very painful. And as I think the last three years have taught people over and over, be careful with investing with too much confidence in the sense that you know exactly what's going to happen. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. Inflation's a problem. We think it'll come down. We think the, the, the fight in Ukraine will stay in Ukraine. In that outcome, yeah, high quality bonds, underweight them, but don't abandon them because you can't really see the future and you don't want to put all your eggs in one risky basket thinking you know what's going to happen. Yeah, well, thank you for that, Arjana. When I, when I do my talks uh, across the country and I speak about our relative underweight, I always hasten to say, but we would never suggest anybody be completely out of the United States government bond, which is the safe haven for the world. And that's something that we really can remind ourselves, particularly when geopolitical risks comes 
you know, front and center is what it has done. But but Phil, on the equity side, and and uh, and I guess RJ made reference to this as to what Federated Hermes stand is general in terms of overweights and underweights. Do you have any comments that you'd like to make, particularly for those looking for income out there? Yeah, I, I think RJ made some excellent comments, and I would echo them. We sort of reflect the same sort of thought process on the equity side that, you know, we're looking at this market that was down 14, 15% uh into uh sort of the end of february and and then as as the fomc was doing its thing last week uh you know raising interest rates and sort of laying out the process and whatever stocks inexplicably are up about seven or eight percent here in the last seven days which doesn't make any sense to us stocks appear to be overbought uh, there are resistance levels all over the place and we're still concerned about what's going on with russia and inflation and monetary policy and and what the impact is on the economy as it relates to you know a prospect of recession uh you know across the uh, proverbial valley so what we did just yesterday is made some adjustments in our model we uh reduced our exposure to international small and mid cap and uh international developed uh actually added a tick to uh uh, domestic large cap value and added another tick to cash. So we are still 3% overweight equities, 3% underweight bonds, but within that equity allocation, we are very focused upon uh, economically sensitive categories in the value space that are cheaper, that have lower betas, that have lower risk profiles, and have well above average dividend yield support. Uh, stocks that are yielding, you know, three, four, five percent, uh, as opposed to the S and P average, which is around one and a quarter, one and a half percent. So we're playing defense here as we try to, you know, figure out exactly what's going on with all of these uh, uh, areas of concern. We think we'll get through this uh, over the course of the year. We 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 think we've got some favorable midterm election results coming up later in the year, but but this is a very perilous part of the cycle right now. And I think being cautious, being prudent, playing defense uh, is probably the, the, the right way to sort of navigate these difficult times. Yeah, I think when we had our year-end uh, outlook webcast and you all spoke about the volatility that was to come, I think, I think you hit the nail right on the head. We certainly are experiencing volatility. I'd like to say to to the group, um, we have been weaving in questions from the group throughout the discussion today. And if anyone has uh, any questions that they want to, you know, just uh, just chime in in now. I do have an, a question for Phil though that's come in here towards the end of our time together, and it looks at the what's the appropriate price to earnings ratio to pay for stocks. And we know that in January, the stock market got hit hard, I think by two multiple points, as we concerned ourselves with the Fed. This is even before, as, as we know, before uh, Russia, Ukraine became a thing and the price of oil did a, did a, a quick bounce up. Um, we got hit for a few pre price earnings multiples. If we suggest an inflation will come down, but still stay rather high, should we still expect lower price to earnings ratios, more punishment that way, as we try to figure out how our year is going to end here with uh, with the S and P five hundred levels? So we're we're not in a Goldilocks environment now for the reason stated that we have had this spike in inflation, and and typically price earnings ratios and levels of inflation, nominal inflation, are inverse, which would suggest that inflation goes higher, P should contract. At the same time, interest rates 
are still relatively benign. That's another key element in our evaluation model, the so-called Fed model that Alan Greenspan had created when he was the chairman of the Federal Reserve back in the 80s. Uh, low interest rates, you know, when we're sitting here with benchmark 10s with a two-handle, uh, suggest that PE should be relatively high. So you sort of put those two disciplines together, and our PE assumptions over the last couple of years is that PEs very comfortably could be in the low 20s, and that's exactly where they've been. Now that we've seen the spike in inflation and we've seen interest rates start to move up based upon the Federal Reserve's withdrawal of policy accommodation, uh, we're thinking that PE should contract. And they're not going to go to zero you know, or, or some you know, single-digit number, but, but taking an average PE from you know, 21 or 22 and bringing it down to 18 or 19 or 20 until we can get our hands as to what this cycle looks like is, is probably a prudent approach to valuation. Yeah, and, and probably still can make sense when interest rates are still so very low, right? Exactly. Still quite low. And so, RJ, just as we come towards the end here, did you, did you want to hazard a guess as to whether or not we'll see a 3% tenure during this year? Um, I don't know if it'll be this year. Certainly could be. I think 3% is exerting some gravitational pull uh, on the 10-year. I don't know whether we get there in, in calendar 2022 or not. The Fed uh, told us in the summary of economic projections, the median dot for the terminal Fed funds rate in this cycle was a 275. Uh, you do a chart historically, the 10-year does seem to converge on the terminal Fed funds rate in every Fed tightening cycle. The jury is out whether or not that happens this calendar year. If you look, if you go back to 2018, the 10-year peaked at three and a quarter. If you go back to the end of the taper tantrum, 2013, early 2014, 10-year peaked out right around 3%. So uh, history suggests we, we may be getting there. Uh, the current inflation levels, which are very high relative to recent decades, uh, can't persist. Um, yeah. They have to roll over. Uh, if they don't, the 10-year treasury will probably get to three and even higher. So all eyes on inflation and hopefully an, enough economic strength behind the U.S. economy to, to power through all the shocks uh, while allowing inflation to, 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 to at least level back out to more tolerable degrees. Thank you, Sue, RJ, and Phil for your insights. And thank you to our listeners. We look forward to you joining us again on the Federated Hermes Here and Now podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, we invite you to subscribe to the Federated Hermes channel to get every Here and Now episode, plus our other series, Amplified and Fundamentals, for a global perspective on the issues, challenges, and trends shaping the investment landscape. I also encourage you to subscribe to our Insights email, updates for the latest commentary from the many great minds of Federated Hermes, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Views are as of 3-22-2022 and are subject to change based on market conditions and other factors. This should not be construed as a recommendation for any specific security or sector. Bond prices are sensitive to changes in interest rates and a rise in interest rates can cause a decline in their prices. Stocks are subject to risks and fluctuate in value. Yield curve is a graph showing the comparative yields of securities in a particular class according to maturity. Securities on the long end of the yield curve have longer maturities. The Fed put refers to a monetary policy response in which the Federal Reserve would step in and implement policies to limit the stock market's decline beyond a certain threshold. 
The Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index is a broad-based market capitalization weighted bond market index, representing intermediate term investment grade bonds traded in the United States frequently used to measure the performance of the U.S. bond market. FOMC is the Federal Open Market Committee. ETF is Exchange Traded Fund. Beta analyzes the market risk of an investment by showing how responsive the investment is to the market. The beta of the market is 1.00. Accordingly, an investment with a 1.10 beta is expected to perform 10% better than the market in up markets and 10% worse in down markets. Usually the higher betas represent riskier investments. Federated Investment Management Company 2210036 March 2022